everyone. Welcome to another episode of Megatron Star Wars. I am your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by Jamie. Jamie, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Good. Bordering on great. I'm somewhere between good and great. I am certainly excited about an episode where I get Grogu backstory. Cannot wait to talk about that with you. Definitely, I would say this episode, not much happened. It was not a long episode. It was one of those mid-season, almost felt like kind of a filler episode for Mandalorian in the sense that you're not going to go. I doubt very seriously you'll look back on season three and go, episode four was really my favorite. It's a game changer. But we got some Grogu stuff, so I'm excited about it. But it did seem like one of those where, you know, there's like a little side quest in the advance. You know what it reminded me? Of? It reminded me of that episode in season two when they're having the train. Um, they're on like this large, larger train and it has to escape from the cloning, from the cloning facility yeah. that they visited. Yeah. It kind of felt like that where there's this important backstory element in that episode. It was the, the cloning research. They, I think we saw some bodies that kind of look like Snoke a little bit. In this episode, it's Grogu uh, being rescued from Order 66. However, the bulk of the action of the in the current timeline in the episode is around a side quest that is sort of tangential to the overall season plot. Would you say that's fair? Yes, I'd say it built the, the things going on day to day were progressed in a way that they needed to be progressed, even if they're in small ways. And yeah, in theory, you can hand wave them and have them off and happen off screen. But the idea that he started training, that's worth showing. The idea that Bo-Katan is doing a little bit of bonding. That's better to show than just to show her being buddies with them later. Um, so all of this was good to show useful information. And, you know, I, I do feel like, uh, and I, I bet you'll agree with me because you are a smart person and I'm very convincing. It's my hashtag now. But um, filler episodes get a bad rap. Filler episodes are great. Most shows need to lean back into having more filler episodes. I heard once, I don't know if this is true or not, that the origin of the phrase came from when uh, comics or uh, um, manga were being turned into cartoons and anime. And when the TV show had gotten ahead of the comic or the manga. So they would have to make up stuff that would happen between the already written episodes so you know but it wasn't bad it just had to fit between the other stuff so it had to be a little bit extra but it served a purpose of filling the time but it didn't make it bad it was basically new people telling new stories about the characters you love that were worth telling in a lot of our shows sometimes you get a filler episode of they didn't have anything worth doing so we got to be bored for an hour but that's rarely what actually happens. People think it. It's usually just awesome stuff because things are happening off screen. And sometimes that stuff's great. Um, I love Monster of the Week. Like, uh, I'll say it. Uh, I think it can be done poorly. But if you do it halfway competent, those are sometimes the most entertaining, enjoyable shows. You know, I've, I've mentioned I'm a Doctor Who fan. A lot of their episodes are filler episodes. They have, you know, the big villains. But most of their episodes are one-off things. And then you're done with that thing, and you'll never go back to that planet again. And that's fine. And it's wonderful. So I loved it. I, I think it was great. I wanted more of it. My only com- big complaint would be it was shorter than I wanted it to be. But that's kind of true about shows I love, like Mandalorian, almost every time. Yeah, and it's like, what's the purpose of doing a television show set in the Star Wars universe if you're not going to fill out the Star Wars universe? That's the lim- one of the limitations of the movies is that – 
as much as the movies did introduce us to the Star Wars universe and gave us tons of backstory and told us about planets and characters, etc., you're only in it for two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. Like you're not two and two and a half hours. You're not in the planet for that. Well, you're not in the universe for that long. So having a television show where it, they can just continue to fill out the universe is really helpful. And then we got one of my, my, what I've been hoping for, what I, what I've wanted. I wanted them to give me an answer for how Grogu got out of order 66. They gave it to me. We'll discuss that when we get there. The format of the episode that we're going to do today and our review of Chapter 3, Episode 4, The Foundling, is I will go through a recap. Jimmy Jimmy will help me with that. Chime it in. I would say jokes, witticisms, interesting anecdotes. That's what Jamie provides. Then we will go to... Very and comedic relief. Then we do best line of the episode and nostalgic moment of the episode. We will wrap up. We have promised Spencer... Midway through the season, we will get Spencer next episode. So when we review Chapter 5, uh, or Episode 5, uh, I think it's like Chapter 21, it would be something like that, um, of the overall series. Spencer will be here to review, and then he will be here with a season review at the end of Episode 8. But today, it's just Jamie and I, and we're going to talk through the recap here of The Foundling. Jamie, anything you want to say before we jump into the recap? Real quick aside, unrelated to this episode, because it's I want to see if you love it, because I can see somebody who loves it. Or if you're like me, where it's kind of a pet peeve, this being episode like 21 is like when somebody says, "How old's your baby?" Oh, it's 22 months. Like, yeah, but I don't want to do math. Like, it, it's kind of useful, I guess, saying which episode it is as a whole. But I don't, I don't care. It's sort of, it, it. I don't know. I don't know. It bugs me. I think it would matter for me if the seasons felt more connected. But but season three feels so different than season two. That continuing the numbering from season two to season three doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I know why they're doing it. It's like overall story. It's like a comic book kind of. But I feel like there is a big differentiator between season two and season three. Two years. So <clears throat> two years, different plot stuff. They're going different directions. Like it's it's definitely valuable when you're talking about an episode to qualify if it falls in you know season one and two or season three for me. Anyway, that, that's all I had, because it, it really, every time you say that, I'm glad you're doing it. Part of me loves it that way, so you can really just identify an episode by one specific number. It's easy. But I always realize I don't want to do math and that I can't figure out what it means. Well, so the way I do it when I post the episodes online is I, I will explain in the notes it's chapter whatever, whatever. But the title is always <clears throat> season three, episode four. I always do it by the season and the the episode within that season. So this is season three, episode four, the foundling and the recap. We get the creed being said by the foundlings. It's kind of appropriate that we, we jump right in with them swearing the oath and we get a recap of Jinjar and being redeemed as well as Bo-Katan. As we start with the opening credits, then we're back with the planet where the Mandalorians are training. They are training again, going to your theory, which I tried to give you credit for last week, but you, you shook me off. You didn't want credit for the theory, but it was oh. like the idea that, these are new recruits. They're training. The, what the armorer is doing on this planet is trying to build up her numbers again. That when we went back to the Boba Fett episode where it was fairly clear that there were three left, there was Mando, Paz Vizsla, and the armorer, that that was accurate then. But Mandalor- the armorer has taken steps since then to increase the numbers. And it looks like we're up to maybe, what, 30, maybe? 35 people? Yeah. what we're seeing on screen? Um. I feel like less than that, but that's probably about right, 20 or 30. 
Grogu is sitting alone and we see rocks move all around him. And I thought he was using the force. I thought he was practicing the force there for a second. And what we figure out is that is not the case. Grogu is just sitting. And these are sand crabs that are under the rocks. He picks one up, looks at it, really thought he was going to try to munch on it. He did not, though. Uh, Mando came over and said, playtime is over. I'm going to need you to focus. And then we see the sand crabs take off. He brings Grogu over and proclaims him the next challenger in the training exercise. I actually got like sad here because he might have just been talking about, hey, I need you to come do this thing now. But it almost feels like he's saying it's time for you to grow up some. Like, I don't know, when you hit literally out of the sandbox and put him into the arena and say playtime is over, I get the idea of it's time for you to stop being a child and now to be a you're you need to train to be an adult now and you need to you know come over here and be serious and i'm like don't don't make baby yoda serious he's he's baby like i don't care if he's 100 and 10 feet tall he's still gonna be baby yoda yeah see that's where we differ that's why i I have a different i think i have a slightly different approach to the character where i'm really interested in what he's thinking how he's growing where he's going if we don't get a situation where chapter 78 season seven of Mandalorian isn't Grogu 150 years old kicking ass in the galaxy as a freelance Mandalorian. If we don't get that, I'm going to be very disappointed because I'm very interested in Grogu's journey and his training and all of that stuff as a character, as opposed to just a sort of an interesting cute prop piece. I, okay. I don't, I don't actually disagree with you. It just, it, it made me sad in my heart that he had to tell Grogu time to grow up. Time to stop playing yep. and go be serious and stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, but I love baby Grogu. You're not the only one because Bo also seems concerned about this move by Mando. He, she actually says to Mando, are you sure this is a good idea? Mando says he's eventually going to have to learn if he's going to go from a foundling to a prince. So I guess we're we're learning sort of the stages of Mandalorian training. You start as a foundling. I guess maybe step one in your training is prince. Mando says, I'm his ward. I agree to this. I'm gonna. We're gonna do this, and they decide they're gonna use training darts. Yeah, yeah, because he's gonna. I guess a prince, apprentice, and then journeyman, maybe. I don't know, but um, guess we'll uh, learn. I, I definitely had to lean into your uh, Mando's kind of dumb, um, or just like not nearly as good at stuff as he seems to be, because he puts him in there, and the question is like. Does he know how to use darts? And he's like, he'll figure it out. You should show him before you're strapping it to his arm. You should make sure it fits on his arm, which it does, fortunately. But telling him how to fire the darts before you're being put into the arena, even a training arena. Like, oh, come on. Come on, Mando. Like, what are you doing? Well, uh, you Bo has the same feeling, right? She's our She's our voice in the scene for that perspective, because she's like, he doesn't know how to use training darts. Like, what are you doing? I, I kind of struggle with this, right? Because in, on one, one side of this, I really like that Mando has this really intense faith in Grogu to be able to pull through any situation. He has, a, he's seen Grogu accomplish a great many things, everything from putting a man core to sleep to, you know, elevating a what was it a mud beast in, in season one to the stuff he did with the the different people who've been attacking them through the years. I mean, like he's just a, like Mando has seen Grogu accomplish a whole lot, so he has this abject faith faith in him. However, on the other hand, I don't like it when a father figure to a child is always just like throw them in the deep end; they'll figure it out because inevitably 
they push him too far, something bad happens, and the kid gets hurt. So yeah. I'm I'm kind of of two minds about this. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm there with you. On the one hand, he wins, so Mando was right. But on the other hand, you could at least tell him what to do or practice it for him once first. You, know, you think your kid's going to be a natural at baseball because he likes, you know, he's just athletic. Fine. But before you put him in a game of t-ball, you throw the ball around with him for a little bit. You let him hold the ball before it's game time a little bit. He didn't know what a dart was. He seemed very unclear on the rules to start with. So agree with you. He should have. I'm unclear on the rules after having seen it, to be fair. So that's well, it, it's it's basically three rounds. Go, shoot, go, shoot. But it looks like he was able to score three times in one round. So I'm a little confused about the rules, too. I, I, I think – Cool, I guess. If you make it cool enough, we'll just give it to you. I think Mando messed up in two different ways here. One is he should have had a heart to heart with, with Grogu maybe when they woke up that morning. And maybe he did and we didn't see it where he says, look, you're going to train today. Like, mentally prepare yourself. Like, get ready. Here's the thing you're going to do. Like, we're going to work on training darts. And talk talk him all through it. The other thing he should have done, which is extremely important, is to explain to the other kids that Grogu is not like a kitten and is extremely dangerous. Like, because Grogu took it easy on this kid. All he did is do a couple jumps and then shot the thing. But what would they do if Grogu starts collapsing his windpipe like he did to Cara Dune in Season 2? Right? I actually expect that. I, that that's the thing. You're right. There is no way at all that I can barely walk, but I can also murder mud beasts. It's going to be a fair fight. It's not going to be even. It's not going to be close. It was going to be a slaughter one way or the other, and it was just what way did they want it to do? Do you want it to be, look, Grogu's waddling around and can't get away fast enough, and he, he got 0-3, or is it, you know, they, they played slaughter of, you know, uh, rope-a-dope and then slaughter gently. Easily could have been picking up the other kid by the throat and just holding him there and very slowly and maniacally hitting him three times with three darts. I kind of expected that to be what he did the third time. Yeah, I think Grogu Grogu is – we've seen enough to know that he's kind. The only person he's ever really seriously tried to hurt was Cara Dune, but that's when he thought Cara Dune was really seriously trying to hurt Mando and he was confused. Like, I I think all the – Evidence we have is that Grogu has a kind heart. He's not really trying to hurt people. So he did. But Nando still should have warned them and said, look, he's got, he can, he can wield the force. He can do this stuff. Like you need to be careful around him. They pro, well, they should know that he can use the force or else like, why else is he there? Like it, that must be known. There's scuttlebutt. There's, there, you know, people, it is known. I, I guarantee it, it's known. Um, but what that means, he clearly seems has- to me like, so I agree with you, but it seems to me like the type of thing that's being talked around and not talked directly to. Yes. So I think everybody else knows this kid can do weird stuff. Oh, yeah, right. I haven't seen him do anything. That's basically the scuttlebutt. So everybody knows that he might be able to do weird things. He might have powers. He's old or a baby or both. But you're right. Nobody really knew. I, I thought that that was just kind of weird. And you're right, he is kind. Like, at first, he just, he didn't, I don't think he knew what to do. It seemed no. like I like getting shot by these things. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, it turned out fine. So maybe I'm overthinking it. But it really did seem weird. I, I, I did not like that parenting style. No, I think it was a little, 
reckless by Mando on both sides of this. Reclo, reckless with Grogu and reckless with the other foundlings who were going up against him. But in either case, we get a Grogu victory. And we get Grogu looking pretty pleased with himself at the end. And it's as with most things, it's often difficult to figure out with Grogu if he is he himself is happy, which he might be, or if he's happy because he thinks Mando's happy. That that stuff gets there's so much overlap with that that I can't always tell like if he's pleased with himself or if he's like, hey, look, I did what Dad said, so I'm doing a good job. In any, any case, we we end the scene with Grogu with a big smile on his face. Pause. Asked, did you, or uh, Bo asked, did you teach him that? And he says, not me. It's interesting that he's being so cagey with Bo because Bo saw Luke Skywalker take Grogu away. So he could have just said, Luke taught him that. I mean, you know, Bo knows the name Luke. It would have been very easy for him to do that. Pause repeats, one does not speak unless one knows. We end scene. Then we get a scene where a family is snatched up by a very large pterodactyl looking thing. We find out later is named a Shriekhawk. Another naming convention that made me laugh thinking about you, Jamie. Shriek, Hawk, uh, General Grievous. It's just, I, they just, I, boy, I, nail hammerhead. I'm, totally, I'm actually totally fine with that, though. Because here's the thing. People get names like when they're younger or get, or maybe they get to pick their own name. Maybe they're given a nickname. You might have like Captain Murder who murders a lot because everybody gave him that nickname. But you wouldn't Captain have that because like his birth um, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't have Murder McMurderson of the McMurdersons, and he's, you know, a ventriloquist or something. Um, animals, though, do get named after just, like, what they do or what they sound like or something. I'm totally fine with Streetcock. That's probably what I would have named. I would have named it that fucking dragon thing that we have to kill. But Streetcock's fine. I don't mind. So I don't mind it either. But the the, the way whenever they name things that's like, so on the nose, I do, I do think of you. Uh, you've, you've pointed that out many times in the Star Wars canon. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, the, the, the new ice planet named Coldopolis. <laughs> we can see a full, a very cool flight scene with the beast who has the, the child, the foundling with him, and we see Mandalorians following it. The Mandalorians eventually start running out of jetpack fuel. Paz says, I'm out of fuel. It always gets away. So this is not the first time this has happened. We get a clue that it's not the first time it's happened later when we see the nest of the Shriekhawk, and there is a, a random Mandalorian helmet there. So I think they've been taking foundlings, people, whatever. They've had trouble with the Shriekhawk before. So here's where I get a clue that maybe our Mandalorian is actually as dumb as you say he is, but still the smartest Mandalorian. Maybe Mandalorians are just stupid. And I wouldn't say that to their face because I like living. But, oh, my goodness. First of all, why do you make your base next to Murder McMurderson the bird house and just not leave? If you well, Murder McMurderson the bird and then Loch Ness the underwater sea creature crocodile thing in the water. Right. They haven't relocated ever since Crocodile Thing, at which is clearly, spoiler, still around, where others of its kind. They picked the stupidest place for their training grounds. Oh, tough, tough land makes tough people. It's like, no, no. Like, it makes for less recruits. Murderous land makes fewer people. Um, they could have just left. And plus, do they know what jetpacks are for? Jetpacks are amazing for maneuvering. For they're not like long distance ships. They have ships. Clearly, you can just fly a ship and follow it. She doesn't. They have ships. None of it always gets away because you never think to get in your damn ship. And well, we don't know. We don't, we don't know that Paz has a ship. But I will say 
that I'd like to volunteer. They had to oh. respond to the planet somehow. They True. have at least True. a between. True. Somebody has a ship or they got dropped off. I don't know what happened. But I will say I'd like to nominate, if it's okay with you, if I if, if I have your permission here, I would like to nominate Bo Katan for the smartest person on this fucking planet. Can we can we nominate her for I, that? A seconded and awarded and voted on and done. It's just done. Because she gets in her ship and follows the fucking thing. Like thank you. Where are you all going? I I do love you know, she gets to be the leader of the expedition. I'm not really sure if there's a reason she's the leader of the expedition, except that she was the one who was smart enough to think, hey, let's follow it with our following machine instead of our loop-de-loop toys. Our, our backpack that, you know, helps us not fall off cliffs as opposed to the fucking ship. Yeah, so she gets the ship. And then we do-do-do-do-do-do-do. We get the chapter 20. We get the title sequence, The Founding. Cut back to the Mandalorians near the cave. Paz, Armor, and Bo are there. Bo says she knows uh, how to get there, how to, how to get to the the Shriekhawk. She saw the where it's nesting. She was able to track it. She says we should muster up a hunting party and go after it. Bo shows them where it is on the map. It flew along this way. Bo says she can get them. She insists that um, they go there. As a group, Shriek to the Shriekhawk, Armorer tells Paz Vizsla to go with them, which um, we learn later, Paz Vizsla is the father of the foundling that got taken. Yep. As they fly away, the Armorer tells Grogu he has too young to go with them. All in good time. Come, Grogu, if you are to be a Mandalorian, there is much to attend to. I personally just appreciate that pretty much everybody we've ever seen him interact with, Grogu has charmed. I even believe that he charmed in his in a, in, a, in his own weird way, uh, Moff Gideon, because Moff Gideon start it started to become very personal that he keep Grogu above and beyond this cloning venture. He just was like, I will fucking die before I give this little child up. I think he just has a way of he has an infectious uh, personality, his infectious way about him, and he, he tends to charm everybody. He's clearly charmed the armor because the armor goes up to Grogu to comfort him after Mando leaves without him, and then also starts to build his armor with some of the, um, I would say, cult tax that everybody gives up. I think they give a cult tax for the foundling, and she uses that to start making his armor. Mo, mo, most, uh, most, most, uh, sorry, there's a little, little um, feedback there. What'd you say? Oh, I said it's called a tithe. In most religions, it's a, it's, a, it's a donation. Cool. Cult tax, it is. Oh, totally voluntary, sir. Yep, cult tax. Oh, um, you might be right about Grogu. I actually give this more in my mind, too, that the armorer is good at her job. She is a good leader. You call it emotional intelligence if you want, but she just has her own way with people. And part of that is noticing when somebody is kind of lost without their mom and dad. Mom and dad leave. All right. Well, I need somebody needs to be watching this kid. So he doesn't like wander off after them. And the kid is obviously going to be worried. So this is a cynically, you would say a good time for me to make a good impression and more inroads. But charitably, you'd say the kid needs a little bit of affection. I will go give it some because it needs that. I think this is just the armor being good. And she would have done this with any any foundling. I present the following evidence to you. Mando himself. Now, uh, uh, the Jedi Master Karen Beck. We have the uh, we have Cara Dune. We have the Mando's love interest in the swamp planet for that one episode that really liked Grogu. We've got Moff Gideon himself. We've got Luke. We've got Ahsoka. 
I'm just saying, there's a long catalog of people who have come across Grogu and been charmed by him. So I'm not going to say he's not charming. And I'm not even going to say that he doesn't have a 100% success rate. I'm going to say that in this instance, I think it was the armor just being good at her job. My evidence would be, look at all these fucking Mandalorians that she's pulled out of the woodwork and convinced to hang out on Murder Beach with her. Yeah, I think you've got to be right there to a certain extent because she she clearly is doing a good job recruiting people. She's got to be emotionally intelligent, charming, a leader in her own right. I think the answer here is probably somewhere in the middle where the armorer probably does really like Grogu and is charmed by him just like everybody else, but she's also doing the thing you're supposed to do with foundlings. So I think that's a good point on your part. She she, uh, she seems like a type to be very careful to not seem to play favorites. You know, she's very stoic in her own way. If you cannot play favorites with Grogu, then shout the fuck out to you. I don't know how you do it. If she's able to accomplish it, then good for her. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, in, in a way that, that uh, you know, I, I, I have to bear the, the you know, lawyer-like thought pattern flag. Uh, it's not that she doesn't have favorites. She has, she has to not have the appearance of favorites. So she Good luck. I mean, no. She actually has a little Grogu tattoo, but it's on her face, so no one will ever see it. Good, good luck. Good luck. Yeah, she's got she's got like a Grogu on one side, a Mud Beast on the other. Mud Horde. Mud Horde on the other side. Grogu follows her in the cave where the armor has set up shop and we see she's working on something. Grogu climbs up to a table so he can see it. She says, This is the forge. It is the heart of Mandalorian culture. She seems to take the forge with her, like her tools for creating the armor. She's taken at multiple places that we have seen. She says, just as we shape the Mandalorian um uh, steel, we shape ourselves. Grogu watches this intently. She says, we all <clears throat> begin as raw ore. We refine ourselves, and through trials and adversity, the forge can reveal weaknesses. Grogu is getting more and more emotionally upset watching the forge, which was... I didn't understand what was going on at first. He seemed really upset, like he was his ears down. He seemed very sad. And then we figure out why, because he's getting a flashback of... I would call this in-universe PTSD, I think, for him. Yeah. And then we get the flashback of Order 66 and all the clone troopers coming for him. Grogu, before I, before I go into the full flashback scene, anything you want to talk about with the armor, forging the armor, talking to Grogu, that whole scene? I mean, no, I'll, I'll, I, I think it's very strange what she makes for him and hangs it on his chest and all that. <laughs> after We can talk about that now if you want. I, I'm not really sure what the purpose of the armor she's making for him is at all. Yeah, I'm a little confused about the armor, too. We'll get to that. So um, Grogu is in the flashback to Order 66. We see all the clone troopers coming for them. I would have bet you I'd have bet you this computer. I'm talking to you. These headphones, the shirt I'm wearing, this phone near me, every single thing I could get my hands on. I would have bet you that we would have seen Anakin come in the door. But we did not see Anakin come in the door. Instead, it was just clone troopers that were attacking the, it looked like youngling Jedi with Grogu around at the start of the scene. Did you expect it to see Anakin here? I did. Uh, or rather, I expected. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure. On some level, I expected to see his lightsaber in smoke and then like cutting away. Yes. Uh, yes. I think that's my old biases. I wouldn't expect them to get Hayden Christensen to come back. Now that he's come back. I think if I had thought about it carefully, I would have expected to see him. My pre-Obi-Wan brain was driving at the moment. I expected to see the red of the lightsaber and then cut and run um, and never to actually see him. But I did expect it to be him nearby. 
So the elevator stops. <clears throat> well, first off, as the clone troopers are coming in, as the clone troopers are coming in, the younglings put Grogu in an elevator, and the elevator closes just in time. Grogu's able to get away. The elevator opens up, and we see Master Jedi Keller and Beck. This is a new character. I like the character of Keller and Beck. Fourth wall breaking, I like that they casted as Ahmed Best, who caught a lot of shit for being Grogu, which was absolutely not his fault at all. Did oh, a good – or not uh, uh, Jar Jar. Um, it was Jar Jar Binks. Not his fault at all. Did a great job with Jar Jar, considering what he was supposed to do. I like that they cast him in the role. I think he did a good job. I like the character. I will say I'm disappointed. I'm okay. disappointed I'm so, because – I'm surprised you're disappointed. I expected nothing but 10 out of 10 gushing. I want to hear this. Well, I just thought – it's like it's like you're playing Clue, and you're like, who's the killer? And you're like, is it Colonel Mustard? Is it this one? Is it that one? And then you find out that the killer is some character you never heard of before that you had no chance at possibly guessing in the first place. It's like, yes, it does. It makes logical sense that the person who saved Grogu is somebody we not met before, a new character. That's fine. But I had done this gymnastics for two years in my brain about who could have been saving Grogu. I thought up Yoda. I thought Anakin might have done it himself. I thought Grogu might have saved himself. He might have been strong enough to get out on his own. I had all these fucking theories. And the answer was, it's a person that you never met before that they're going to make up for season three. So that's the part that disappointed me. I Okay. Because I'm a very convincing fellow and I t- say very convincing things, I'm going to try to win you over for this. because You I'm have the floor. So – I don't disagree with your feelings of disappointment because you did come up with cool theories and it is, you know, the idea of a person whose name we don't know, you could not have invented the correct answer. But here's the thing. It being this specific made up Jedi, just what his name is, irrelevant. How did he escape? He escaped because... There was a plot is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it because I can't think of a better one. There was a plot from the other Jedi. As soon as this was happening, they figured out what was going on, and they organized really fast, save Grogu. And so it's not Yoda necessarily. You might find out that Yoda actually like is the one who sent out the message of hey, invisible hands. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You they organized it, but it was the Jedi's. The Jedi Council teamed up with each other. Like we don't know any of their names specifically. But I would, oh, you know, one or two. I guess they said one or two others as they were dying. Um, but it was really just the Jedi Order helped him to escape, which I think is one of the good theories. You know, you could say it was Anakin. That's an interesting theory that Anakin, some reason, spared him. You could say it was Grogu himself and or dumb luck. You know, he killed the three people who came after him and then he hid in a box and just, you know, everything else passed him by. Or he got kidnapped or knocked out and, you know, like. Bilbo and the five armies to just knock down behind a bush while it all happens. Um, you could have had to be anything. But the idea that he is somehow beloved enough or important enough that other Jedis and, and or trainees and or younglings or something are risking their lives and organizing to put themselves in more danger to get him out is fascinating and really interesting to me. And I think that counts as a legit theory. It's just the Jedi Council or the Jedi Order or, you know, did it. Um, I'm really curious why they went to these lengths to get him out. Because it wouldn't be just he's a youngling. 
it wouldn't be we're saving a youngling, get the youngling to safety, because it would have been all of them. They would have had There's a ton of younglings, yeah. Right. Any one of them probably would have laid down their life for a younger youngling if they could have helped him to escape. But they wouldn't have plotted this whole, we will all stay back to get him to safety unless he's really important. Unless they knew he's the last Yoda baby, or he is Yoda's nephew, or he is Metachlorian Count 10,000 or something. So I'm really curious what at the time was so special about him that they would have organized all this. So many of the Naboo would die for him. So many of the Jedi and Jedi trainees would be willing to die for him. I'm really curious about that because that means they already knew he was somehow notably special. Um, so let me explain what happened here to the audience. So sometimes when you, you have a team, let's say it's basketball, you have a team. You got a guy on the team you know is really good. You enjoy playing basketball with him. But one day you come out on the court and the motherfucker just can't miss. Three-pointer after three-pointer. That's what happened here. Jamie, you're on fire today. You just convinced me of this. And I'll tell I you why you it was so good. Feelings, good feelings. Here's why it was so good. Because you built it around the idea that Grogu is special, and you know that plays to me. Perfect. <laughs> it, it was absolutely perfect. No, you have convinced me now that this is a really good explanation. I, I, The fact that they introduced a new character to do it is the part that's frustrating for me because they had built up this mystery around it. But what you – now you've got me thinking – that the, who, the person covering in fact is not that important. It's the process around it, why it occurred, who sent yep. him, still, which is still out there, which we still don't know. I think that like I think the, your 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 theories are the ones that I would go to, right? Which is relative of Yoda, maybe even son of Yoda. You have last of species, or you have just way more force sensitive than, than everybody else, and they recognize. Most potential could be the next Jedi Master after Yoda, whatever. So that's the person they want to save. All three of those seem absolutely relevant and in play to me. I like the idea that Yoda's home world has been destroyed or whatever, and that Yoda and Yaddle made Grogu in an attempt to further their species, not because they're in love or something, but because they need to further their species. We know from Legends canon that Jedi who are from species that are rare or have population issues are allowed to procreate to further their species. It, it, it's not breaking your vows to do so. I don't know if that's new canon or not, but that was certainly legends canon. So that's could have been something Yoda did. So I shall continue detective that I am with this mystery thinking about why they saved Grogu. Cause you're absolutely yeah. right. What we see on screen is Keller and Beck gets Grogu and there's an entire process that happened extremely fast now i'm just repeating what you said ah. to get him out which includes some new republic troopers who have gathered a ship and gotten a ship ready and were waiting for him and he and keller and beck gets grogu onto the ship they take off they go to hyperspace the hyperspace is what is triggering some of this the, the flashing lights that ptsd for grogu back to the present moment where the armor is forging his armor and we see what she's making, which is a chest plate that I would say currently too big for Grogu. However, she keeps saying he's going to grow into it at some point. So it's not, I, I think it's a pauldron, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it supposed to be like a shoulder piece? It's on his chest right now. Well, I, I don't well, know it, it, it's the size of a golf ball. I mean, but I, we I, know, I, we know what a grown up Yoda looks like and that thing is not going on Yoda's shoulder. So that that's, I'm really unclear. And he's already, she says, oh, this will keep you safe. It's like, 
you put it over the Beskar chainmail. Like, that part of him's already safe. I'm just saying, he can't get hit there. He's got... But you know... He's got the mithril chain armor of plot protection already. But you know... He's got plus 10 to plot armor already. But you know he's going to get hit in the chest now, right? You know that. Yeah, or something. I don't know. I liked it. That's the part of Favreau's storytelling that frustrates me a little bit, is that when you stick that thing on his chest, I guarantee you the next four episodes he will get shot in the chest. So, I mean... are you familiar with the phrase? I'm sure you're familiar with the concept and probably the phrase, Chekhov's gun? Yep. Okay. For anyone in our audience who's not um, author Chekhov, uh, you know, it, it's the idea that if in a theater production you have a gun on stage in Act 1 that's, like, really visible, somebody should fire that gun in Act 2. Otherwise, you're just distracting people for no reason and you're teasing them and not following through. It's kind of a 101 level on foreshadowing and good foreshadowing and bad foreshadowing. So, yes, you're right. They're showing us this. They're going to use it. It's going to come up again. And it would almost be worse if it didn't. You're right that when you become genre savvy, you can kind of get spoilers accidentally just because you know what would or wouldn't be fulfilling and you know how good the people writing are or aren't at their job. But I I think I'm a little frustrated by it being a useless thing now and probably useless forever because of how big he's going to get. Um and because they just hung it over the pre-existing Beskar, that's uh, it's the mostly useless place to put more Beskar. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but uh, they will do something with it. Chekhov's gun principle. Completely agree with you. How do you feel about going back to the the, the flashback to Order sixty six? How do you Let's, feel? How do you feel about the fact that Ahmed Best cast as Jar Jar, bullied, disliked, mistreated at cons, et cetera, et cetera. That Favreau cast him as the person to save Grogu, fourth wall breaking, like like obviously okay. casting him like we are going to make him the hero of all heroes of the Mandalorian story in order to, quote, get him back into the good graces of the, the fans, which he never should have been out of anyway in the first place. Uh, I, I love it so much, and I love it so much because I think they did it perfectly. So for anyone who does not know, the actor who is playing this new Je- uh, Jedi – is the same actor who played Jar Jar Binks in motion capture. He's a Jar Jar. Yeah, never saw his face, never heard his voice, but everyone was acting opposite him. He did the physical work on Jar Jar, and then other people did, you know, the voice acting. I, the voice acting was somebody else, right? I can look that up right now. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the CGI was obviously not him. And <laughs> Jar Jar Binks was so hated you know, there's jokes now about, you know, no, Ahmed did the Ahmed did the voice. Ahmed Best okay. did do the voice. Okay. He did the voice and the body. He was the actor, uh, even if you didn't see his face. And Jar Jar was so hated, you know, there's jokes about Darth Jar Jar as actually having been the Sith mastermind behind everything, which is that's, silly silly headcanon, but fine. It's silly headcanon that happens to be real, yes. Okay, that too. So it's true. Um there's the fact that Jar Jar in Canada <laughs> just a city fool living in a fountain on some backwater planet where he's just like juggling for kids which is kind of adorable but kind of also sad uh apparently he the actor got bullied so in a similar way to how some other actors and actresses have been bullied to where he hated the series and was actually like spoke up about suicidal feelings uh and depression and hating star wars and everything uh because of how he was treated by the more toxic and critical elements of the fan base. For people who don't know that, 
it doesn't matter, and he's just a really awesome Jedi. And they're giving him a TV version of what, you know, uh, Liam Neeson has, of where, no, it's just an actor who's doing a great job with a cool Jedi who's doing important things. So if you don't know that, then he's just getting a great role. And we don't need to know that if you don't want to break the fourth wall. If you don't, great. It's fine. Um, there's nothing lost if you don't. But if you do, yeah, the same way that Anna, uh, Hayden Christensen has kind of been redeemed by the fandom um, a little bit by time and a little bit by the Obi-Wan way series. the Obi-Wan series made the prequels better uh, and his good work in the Obi-Wan series. Um, I, I just think it's great. I think it is a kindness to the actor. I think it is an Easter egg for the fandom. I think it's a good role with a good character who did, I mean, the part was very small, honestly, but he did a great job with it. Nothing more you could have wanted out of that scene, I don't think. So I love everything about it. I think it's a lot more subtle. Uh, I think everybody's talking about it now, and I don't think they will be talking about it forever. Um, because it's rather subtle. It's a small thing. But it's just a good thing. It's just a correct thing. It just made everything better. I like that Favreau seems to be taking people who have publicly said they hate Star Wars and casting them in The Mandalorian and bringing them into the fold. He's a big tent guy. Think about what he did with Bill Burr, who spent years talking, like actually had a a sketch in his stand-up special about how Star Wars was so lame. And then he cast Bill Burr, and now Bill Burr is walking around telling everybody he likes Star Wars. Ahmed Best, who rightfully, by the way, he's, he's different than Burr in the sense that he was rightfully frustrated, angry, had been mistreated, which is absolutely ridiculous, by the way. If you don't like Jar Jar Binks, first off, just don't like him and, like, get over yourself. But if you want to blame somebody, blame fucking George Lucas. It certainly isn't Ahmed Best's fault. Like, that's absolutely insane. For the record, I do blame George Lucas entirely for everything I dislike about Jar Jar Binks. So I, I, and that's fine. Oh, he created the character. He's the one that did it. Ahmed Best just was an actor who did a chop. And, and to be fair, like, honestly, I can't think of anything I would have wanted Ahmed Best to do differently with Jar Jar. Like, as no. near as I tell, he did the character 100% sure. and out of 10 what it was designed to be, the way it was designed to be, you know, you can kind of only do what the script is written for. And if you, if you're the best version of what you're trying to be, then you can't do better unless you're able to make a brand new character. And that was not what he was there for. Yeah. And like, I just like that the Favre seems to be pulling people back into the fold, getting people into the Star Wars universe that maybe they didn't expect to be in it or be back in it. It's pretty cool. I like it. I, I really want um, one of those memes where it's like uh, faces of different people, and it's it's Anakin, and it's uh, you know the, the comedian you said, and it's him, and it's other people. You get to be in the not you over Caradun in the fold for everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> uh, so then we get this scene that I, I I'll just go really fast with this because I don't think that they're it's fun, but there's not a lot to do in the recap, which is. Bo takes a hunting party out. She's the leader of the hunting party. It includes Mando, Paz, and some non-playable characters. They go out. <laughs> they right. land. They land. They do stay overnight. When they stay overnight, Bo learns how to eat, where Mando's like, she asks Mando, like, how do I fucking eat in this thing with people around? He's like, you don't. Basically, we all go off on our own. She, as the leader of the hunting party, gets to stay at the fire, and she does take her helmet off. We do see her face. But none of the other characters do. So that's what we talked about last episode. I remember I asked you to bet on that, and you you actually called us. You said we will see her her face again, but it won't. Other characters won't. She'll have taken it off at a time when she's alone, which is exactly what happened in this episode. 
yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I could have seen it either way. I, I, I'm, yeah, it's fine. I'll, I'll take credit for it. I, I would not have expected them to have shown her face at all in this episode. So I would have, if you had gotten me down to the nitty gritty, I would have guessed wrong. I, I had a couple questions here. We've seen Mando eat soup with his helmet on, where he just kind of tips it up a little bit. Right. Why didn't they do that? Because I think, I, I, well, I don't know, but I, it looked like they had solid food here. Maybe because they doing use a fork or something. I don't know. Yeah, solid food. You know, they probably need their hand. I don't know. It's probably just easier to do it this way. It's um, probably easier, um, but it, it seems a little strange. Uh, I guess they're all used to it because my brain, you know, she, I, I, my favorite part of the scene was actually her right before she takes it off where she looks around. And maybe this is, you know, that we get used to um, pers- uh, giving more facial expressions to these masks than they really have. You know, same way you will uh, uh, humanize a rock or a, a robot or something. But it really seemed like her body language, I think she was just this good an actress. Her body language was very, very uncertain, uncomfortable, and really worried that, is this a trick? Are they still nearby? Are they coming back? In like one quick look around, it had a whole lot of uh, tense confusion, and I loved it. Uh, it was it was great. So that's exactly how I would feel. I'd be like, are, are, can I really? I was told not to do this. Um, I don't know when they're coming back. I don't know and if they're all gone. And like normal, I think the name of the episode is a play on words, right? Because obviously Grogu, Foundling, we get a bunch of Grogu stuff. We get the Foundling who's being taken away via the Shriekhawk. And then I think to a certain extent, you can extrapolate the meaning to be Bo because she's just starting off with this group. She's obviously not a founding level, but she's learning things that a founding would learn, which is like how to eat, you know, just some sort of basic stuff about the creed. Anyway, the hunting party gets up the next morning. Bo is really the leader here at the hunting party. She has them do a little rock climbing. They go up to the nest. At the nest is where they see the stray Mandalorian helmet. They're able to figure out that. Shriekhawk has babies, three little baby Shriekhawks, which are fucking huge. Those things are still big. Um, Shriekhawk comes with the child. Big action sequence goes on. Go ahead, Jamie. I have a question of a place where my suspension disbelief was strained. And mm-hmm. I'd love if you can help me. Because I, I can do a suspension disbelief. I can even have it be – I can hand wave away things that I don't buy. Did I can go to the show. Why is the boy still alive, and why did the Mandalorians think he would still be alive? What was the thing doing with him all night long, if not feeding him to these babies? Here's the only thing I could come up with. Okay. Is that either Bo put eyes on him when she went out with the ship and figured out that the, the Shriekhawk had dropped the child down and the child was still alive. She could have she could have seen it right and to come back and said, "Well, he's at least still alive when I saw him, so it's worth going out there to try to get him." Two is this has happened before, and so they might have known because it's happened before because they've chased a shriekhawk before that through that experience they learned that the shriekhawk keeps the child alive until the last possible minute when it feeds it to the child to to the to the baby shriekhawks. Those are the only two things I could come up with. Yeah, the idea of waiting until spending the night and going in the morning, I'm like, why do you possibly think that the child's going to survive till morning? Like, right why would the Shriekhawk has already already fed the, the, the babies? Yeah, at the point. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I, I could have, I could imagine, you know, playing like cat and mouse. Like, he's there in the nest alive because the Shriekhawk is not hungry yet and it's storing him up because the Shriekhawk feels secure in his nest. Um, it, it was that was actually just frustrating for me because I understand we need stealth, we need sunlight, but really 
you need to go as fast as you possibly can because every moment's very likely uh, when the kid's going to die. Um, so 100% agree with you. And I would have rewritten the episode to have them take a break for lunch maybe instead of overnight because the, the overnight part is where you're like, you're going to wait like eight hours, 10, 12 hours, whatever it is <clears throat> before you go back after the child. If it, because the whole point of the transition from day to night, I think, is so they can have this scene around the campfire and they can have the eating thing and, and whatever. You could have done that without switching from night to day and, and having the clock run that long on how long the kid had been captive. Yeah. Um, the, the only other reason would be, well, because you could have them, uh, if you're trying to say how tall it needed to be, how long it would take, that you wouldn't want them to arrive at the top in the dark. But, I mean, that, that's a choice on when you have a strike and how far away. You could have, you could have written that any other way you wanted it to. Even have them climb through the night and sleep halfway up for like an hour to, you know, rest their arms or something. Um, anyway, I, I don't buy it. I don't like it, but it's small and I'll hand wave it and I won't complain about it after this conversation. I think like a lot of the inconsistencies that happen in the, in John Favreau's writing. Mm-hmm. You can do some things to explain it in universe, but it seems to me like an unforced error. You know who yeah. he's like? This is not going to probably land for you, but like, um, if you watch the NBA closely, Steph Curry is probably the most exciting basketball player I have ever watched with my two eyes, other than maybe Michael Jordan when I was a kid. He does amazing things. Steph Curry's the best shooter of all time. You know that, right? You know Steph Curry's a wonderful basketball shooter. He's the best shooter of all time. He shoots like 78% from the free throw line because he has trouble concentrating when he gets there. Unforced error. It's somebody who is capable of very high heights with their, with their process, with the, what they're good at. For John, it's the creative process. But he also does these things sometime in the writing where I'm like, really? Like you didn't take a second to think about that? It's just unforced errors in an otherwise masterful person. Are you saying that Bo-Katan is Michael Jordan, and The Mandalorian is Steph Curry, Steve Curry. I'm saying John Favreau, the writer, is yeah, Steph Curry. But, but I'm saying The Mandalorian is wicked capable. He's amazing. You know, maybe Bo-Katan's better, but he's amazing at so many things. And then he just says, Grr, I need my droid. Grr. I think it could work. I think the metaphor could work for him, too. Yeah, with just boneheaded <laughs> moments in otherwise brilliance. Is that Favreau's self-insert? Is, is, is he trying to live through his Mando? Mando is maybe maybe at the maybe the last episode is him taking his helmet off again and it being John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> Fool you all! Gotcha. It's me. I'm the hero all along. Anyway, back to the recap. Mando is actually the hero here. The child gets dropped, uh, is tumbling toward the earth. And Mando comes and picks it up. I would say a generous read on the situation is that Paz Vizsla gets sidelined a little bit during the, the events and that Mando and Bo are the real heroes of the day. They get the child back. The armorer tells Bo that she has achieved the highest honor in the creed, which is to save a foundling. And she says, well, I actually save three more. Here you go. And she delivers these fucking shriekhawks. I don't know what's going to happen with those things. It's a little interesting they brought them back. I, I will say about that, though, is I thought it was, like, nonsensical that they brought the Shriekhawks back. My wife was very pleased that this occurred, that the babies weren't there to fend for themselves. Ooh, okay, so this is actually funny. I was also displeased, and my wife thought it made sense, too. 
her theory, I was like, how are they going to train those things? I don't think those things are sentient, and they can't wear masks. They're birds. She said, they're going to ride them. They're going to ride them like mythosaurs and the plesiosaur that Boba Fett rides, and they're going to ride them. And I hope they do. I hope they train these things up as their steeds. Because especially with three of them, I mean, incest with animals, whatever, but, like, you could make, like, a breeding colony. You could start this up as the new... The you know the the children of the way or whatever ride these as part of their new mythos as they're rebuilding their cult they're also building up a stable. Yeah, I don't. I think that <clears throat> Chekhov's gun again. They would not have brought the three back if the three don't show up again later. Something happens. They're I not think your be- wife is correct. I think that they I will ride so. them eventually. Because I, I don't think they can talk and be actually foundlings. I think that was just a joke. I don't think they're going to eat them, because if so, why do you bother trying to bring them back alive? Um, so what are you going to do? And I don't think they're going to keep them as pets, because that's not the way. Um, there are no dogs and cats and space weasels running around. So I, I think they're going to ride them. And I, I will accept that, because otherwise it's stupid. Um, but I, I will accept it if they ride them. Same. I think that I think that's going to happen. And, and you're right that um the guy whose name is cool, but I can never remember. And I think it was Big Blue, no, Big Blue Beetleborg um, because I don't know. His, his armor reminds that me checks. of old, Big Blue Beetleborg. Yeah. yeah they, that's they, a hell of a that's a mouthful to say. I can't believe you just rattled that off. Big Blue dude, Beetleborg. Yeah. Are you not aware of the Big Blue Beetleborgs? No idea what that is. It was one of the weird uh, Power Ranger knockoff TV shows. Uh, big bad Beetleborgs or something. Ah, like that. One, okay. One of their armors kind of looked like his because it was big and blue. And yeah, anyway, that's uh, that's what I call him in my head. And now, now fear for all of you. I've said it six times fast. Um, big blue and, and a real deep cut. We'll, we'll talk big about we'll talk about the heroes of Tiernanog, one of the other weird of the seventy-five Power Range knockoffs. We'll talk about them when we get to the Celtic episodes. Um, anyway, he was signed light, and I think that was on purpose, and I think it's fine. This is where. He and Mando um, kind of mend fences without saying anything because they're not. Yes, neither. I agree. Yep, it's a good point. They're not touchy feely talking types. They're not going to talk out their feelings and have any kind of um, reconciliation that way. That guy was a jerk. He tried to steal the rule of Mandalore through taking the dark saber. He was. He did. Uh, he called him a liar when he had been redeemed. Uh, he kind of has just been a jerk. And understandable, well, in his defense, which I'll, I'll say at least this, what has Mando done? Mando has done a lot of cool stuff, but he also you know, was the cause for the death of a lot of Mandalorians. He also is an apostate. Uh, he's part of the reason why they had to like go underground for a while there during the two years they were gone. Um, I can understand having very conflicted th- feelings about Din Djarin. So, so I don't necessarily blame the guy. I do blame him for going up that tower with his giant chain gun on his back because that's just stupid. But whatever. Um, anyway, by having Bo-Katan and Mando save his child and him like say thank you in his own way or something, they're good. They're they're solid now. He he owes him one. Any past anger that he has at Mando is overruled by you saved my son's life. I cannot be mad at you anymore, but we are tight. Yeah, they had that kind of bro moment where he's like, thank you. And he's like, this is the way. And it's like, okay, they're yep. back on a, they got back on a page now. Everything you said about Paz Vizsla is true through his perspective looking at Nando. I agree with that. 
However, mm-hmm. Mando is our protagonist, so fuck Pazizla. That's what I have to say in counter <laughs> that. You're you're a sucker for protagonists. How about that? He's the he's, like, my, he's the friend of my favorite character in the Star Wars universe, and so Bando gets a pass. Uh, fair, fair enough. So then then Bo gets her armor repaired by the armorer, which is kind of cool. And the armor is going to put the night owl. Now, question for you: You've been wondering about the markings on Bo's helmet, right? Yeah. Is the are are we to think from this episode that the markings are of the night owl, and that's yes. why? So it's not a woman. It's not just women have this marking. Well, she has it because of the night owl. So I did a little bit of googling, and it's hard ah. to find much. A lot of what I found out doing research. I know you're the one who does all the research and knows things, and actually watched these other. Told shows. you, you're you're just dropping three pointers today. You're on fire. I, I'm just I getting know. out of the way. That's what I can well, do. I can get out of the way. Well, I don't have good answers for you. Most of the things I found were online conversations between fans from three years ago. But it seems like the markings on her helmet would have been Night Owl, which would have been her clan, Clan Crees or something. That's their logo. Right. Um, it looks like the helmets, the helmet shape, it looks like there's three helmet shapes. The boy one has the T-shape. The girl one has the Bo-Katan shape. And then the armorer has maybe maybe exclusive to armorers kind of shape. Um so I, I think it looks like maybe the helmet design is sexist. Uh, I, I'm not definite on that, but that was what that was the closest thing to a consensus I could find three years ago. Were, um, but anyway, the night owl is her symbol, uh, and that was like the designs on her helmet. It went with the night owl. So it's her clan's signal, signal like uh, the. The sigil signal of the clan, which is the same thing that Mando has with Grogu with the Mudhorn. Mm-hmm. However, there still might be a, a slight sexist element to it, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, got it. Uh, but at least now she's splitting the difference because she's going to have a little bit of Night Owl on one shoulder, and on the other shoulder she's going to have the Mythosaur. And by the way, did 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 I tell you that I really saw a Mythosaur? No. Wait, wait a second. I can tell by your eyes what you're thinking. It's a real mythosaur. No, J- Jamie, trust me here. It's real. I'm not crazy, okay? I'm not crazy. That's kind of the tone of that conversation I got, is that she felt like the armorer was going to think she was fucking nuts. So she kind of was like over a little bit, like overexcited to tell her. And I, here's what I got from the armorer. Didn't really believe her, but pretty disinterested. Kind of. Yeah, uh, it's it's. So here's the thing. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, mythosaurs, I'm unclear whether they are considered myths or whether they're considered extinct. I'm unclear on that. Um, but th- they seem to act as if they think there's no chance of there actually being one. It's like Loch Ness or more accurately, because it's kind of their religion, an angel. It's like, what if I saw an angel? It'd be like, you had a vision. Like, I, I'm I'm the mystic of the clan. That's really No, great. no, no. No, no. Not a vision. I saw a, a real, real thing. angel. <laughs> it it was six wheels with eyeballs on it spinning in the sky with wings. It was a real angel. Um, that that's that's great, Grandma. Let's get you repaired. No, no. What, what do you think about that? I think I think people see a lot of th- it. Had very much. Um, people see a lot of things when they become part of the creed. Yeah, Although it, I, I, but I did not get the sense the armor was telling her. No, I won't believe it. I'm not willing to talk about this. Nope. Like she just did she just sort of passively didn't believe it but wasn't willing to fight about it. So, I mean, which makes sense cuz she's I mean, she's a mystic like spiritual leader. She has to believe that these things are possible, and she does. But 
lots of people who think miracles are possible are not going to believe you if you t- say that you just saw a miracle. Um, it had a very much like it's like the you, thing. So Christians believe Jesus was on earth, right? But if you tell a Christian, I am Jesus, they're going to be like, we got to put you in a fucking loony bin. Like, we're not going to necessarily believe, like, there's a barrier to entry with some of these beliefs that maybe the armorer has with the mythosaur. So I think it's going to take a little cajoling. Well, it it it, it really did have, like, youth group leader uh, vibe of, this is about my pay grade, but, you know, I can't prove you're wrong, kiddo. So, you know. Above my pay grade. That might be that might be what she's saying. Yeah, it's this, a little, this above, little my, above my best car. The way works in mysterious ways, basically. It, it was it's above my best car, but I suppose this is the way. Uh, how about that? Yeah. I suppose this is the way. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I I don't think it believes. It does back up my idea of she did not tell Din Djarin because she didn't think anybody was going to believe her. She's she is clearly over time become more convinced that it did happen. But it really is, you know, it, she's acting as if I saw an angel or I saw, like, yeah, an alien. I saw Loch Ness Monster. I saw Bigfoot. Um, but it has the religious undertones. So she she kind of is a convert because she had a religious experience by seeing this thing, even though it's just an animal. But it's what the religion kind of is based upon. Um, so that was interesting. Bigfoot. Bigfoot, yep. Loch Ness, fill in the blanks, Angel, whatever, fill in the blanks. Okay, that is the recap. Anything you want to talk about with the recap before we jump in our segments? Yes, uh, I, I am okay with heavy-handed symbolism sometimes. It's Star Wars. You're allowed to have heavy-handed symbolism sometimes. Sure, yep. Um, not just did they replace her, her armor. They repaired it, and they said, you know, I, you think Beskar are so rare, they're going to go find her old pauldron. I assume her armor is pure Beskar. They'd go find it. But anyway, it's damaged. It's lost. They're going to repair it right now. Uh, and they say, I can't include all your fancy upgrades. And you'll notice, yeah, sometimes they make it seem like it's super rustic and not futuristic that she's just an armorer with a hammer and tongs. But even his little breastplate thing had, like, weird funky wiring inside. It's got science and stuff going on. So they're saying, I can't include all the fancy new upgrades that your pauldron had, but I can still replace it with, you know, a best-car pauldron. And so now she has one sigil that is her house sigil of the most rich, fancy, powerful house of this super advanced civilization. And then one pauldron that's the fucking dinosaur angel, not all the upgrades, very rustic and simple and plain, and that she is wearing two hats. It's it's very heavy handed symbolism, but I'm here for it. That's fine. I literally love it. It's showing her getting in touch with the roots of her religion and her society and her civilization and uh, her newfound place in the world, uh, but without losing touch with her old place. Um, I think that's I, I well said. That. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I, I agree with you. And I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that like part of this is a, they're victims of the, the fact that they're only going to do, eight episode seasons that are like 30 to 40 minutes at a time. So like sometimes they're really heavy handed to get the point across when subtlety sometimes takes time in media and they don't really have a lot of time. My, if I have one chief complaint about the Mandalorian, it's that they need 15 episode seasons and each episode needs to be about 30 to 45 minutes. Like it can't be less than 30. And when they're doing stuff like this, it needs to, they need to write it a bit more subtly right now. It's like hammer, nail, bang. Let's just 
knock it out because we got a, another plot we got to get to like fucking tomorrow. That's my only beef with it. But again, like you said, Star Wars willing to accept it. It's kind of kind of par for the course with the universe. Um, yeah. Okay, do you want to talk about best line of the episode? Um. See, Spencer always has a big long list, and I just kind of try to remember it as I go. Honestly, my favorite line for the episode really would again be, this is the way, from the armorer at the end, when it's just like, whatever you say, Grandma, sure, uh, you're, yeah, you, you saw Jesus, it's fun, sure, go for it. Yeah, can we do, there's, there's like, this is the way was said a bunch in this episode in so many different tones. It is really the fuck of this show. Like how <laughs> you can say fuck it, it just means anything. This is the way does that, right? You had Paz saying, Paz and Mando talking. Paz says, thank you. And Mando says, this is the way, which was very much a like hyper masculine. Don't mention it. Like I'm too, I'm too but, much of a guy to give you a hug here, but this is kind of my verbal hug. But yeah, cause you're, you're right. Um, when Bo-Katan says it of, you know, you saved a foundling, you did a great thing, or you saved my son, you did a great thing. They were both respond. This is the way, but Bo-Katan's doing it as like, a, um, you know, you're 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 welcome. Of of course I would, but he's doing it like a we're family. Like there, there's ah, it, I, I they were so similar in what they were trying to convey. But you're right. One was maybe you know we are all one people, and the other one was more like no, we're all brothers and sisters and sons and fathers. Like we're family. It was the feel I got from it at least. There's also a, this is the way earlier when they were planning the hunting party that was more of a affirmative like. This is like, this is the plan. This is just what we have to do. Like, this is part of our duty. Then you, at the end, you did have the, the two hands in the air, palms facing up. Like, this is the way. I don't yeah, know. The, Maybe the way from the serious ways. That's, that's my hashtag from the episode. Yeah. So I think that's a great best line of the episode. I think there wasn't great. There wasn't a lot of great dialogue this episode because it was a, a heavy action episode because the two primary things that I take away from it is, the flashback to Order 66, which was mostly just action, and then also the the uh, saving the foundling, which was also just action. I did have this one, though. So from the armor talking to Grogu, it is the tradition in our culture for each to donate a small portion of what they earn to the foundlings. It is with these scraps of Beskar that I forged your next piece of armor, Mandalorian steel. will keep you safe as you go stronger, foundling Grogu. I liked it because I think it was the maybe the first time other than establishing his clan, Mando's clan, it might have been the first time that the armor really put cards on the table that Grogu is one of them. Like, he's not, Grogu's not like a special case. He's not like a, a quasi member. It's like, Grogu is a foundling. He is Mandalorian and he is going to grow up in the Mandalorian culture, eventually have the, the armor do the whole thing. This was the first conversation she's had with Grogu. This is the first time she's talked to Alone. Him. Yeah. That I've well, seen. I, well, I think at all. Like she's talked with him in the room, but I think it's always been, you know, he's been watching her have a conversation with somebody else, and maybe he's referenced in a third person while he's in the room, which is rude, by the way. But um, this is the first time I think she talked with him at all. So you're right, treating him like a person. I, I will. Is it Jamie right? Isn't isn't Jamie right when he says that? Jamie's right, I think, when he says that. See, I did what you said. You didn't like the third person talking thing. That was oh, yeah. that was a little high comedy. There. Well, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna Spencer it up here, and I'm gonna give you more than one though of the episode. See, when I Ooh. say something of the episode, I think I need to come up with one. But um, fire away. In, in the flashback, when they said like, "Where are the rest?" and and actually, I don't have, I, I didn't pull it up when um, 
uh, Jedi Jedi Master Jar Jar says, um, <laughs> Keller and Beck, <laughs> Keller and Beck. Uh, what he says, wait, what did he say? He said, you know, there are no others or something. Yeah, there are no others. Yeah. Like that. He said it well in a, again, kind of heavy handed, kind of melodramatic, but holy crap, you would be melodramatic if you were in that scene. You, sure. Oh my goodness. They just killed all of my family and friends and the religious order I'm a part of. Like you would have a lot of drama in your heart right then. So even if you were saying that that scene was uh, heavy handed, it couldn't not be without being unrealistic. So that would be my other line, because that just kind of told you a bit about him, a bit about the situation. Um, and, you know, n- not that we didn't understand uh, Order 66's weight, but it just gave another example of it landing how heavy a thing it was. I think that's all very good. I like I like everything you said there. I'm going to say, um, what could I say for? I think you say this is the way, but not to sell us which one. It's going to be this is the way. This is the way is that. But now, now which, which one though, man? Which one? Tell me. The one at the end. The, okay. the uh, I don't know. Maybe this is the way. <laughs> that one. Uh, so let's go to nostalgic moment of the episode because I've got a couple. I'd like to do one. That I you're got gonna one. Hate. And it's a good I got one that you you're going to hate. Are you ready for the one you're going to hate? Oh, I, I bet I have the same one actually, and you're going to love. I don't know if you have the same one. So here's the one I think you're going to hate. Uh, I'm nostalgic for the moment of the episode. It's nostalgic for the previous episode when we see the rock of Coruscant. Okay. Like Fine. I'm nostalgic. See, I told you, you wouldn't like it. Yep. All right. No, that, I, that, I, I that roll is, really hard at this actually. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I, I don't say the way. I was, that was, I, I was just fucking with you. Okay. My real one is the Jedi Temple burning. And how that connects to, uh, the Attack of the Clones, uh, or uh, no, the third one, Religion of the Sith. How a- Padme saw that out the window, and now, and then we have a same shot of the Jedi Temple burning the same night. I like the connection to the prequels. I like the consistency, and it's heartbreaking when you see the Jedi Temple burn. So, mine is actually similar, and you're gonna love it. Uh, mine is the chase scene in <laughs> the flashback. Because a combination of similar, you know, they're, they're showing the same world. They're showing it, you know, in a nighttime of a, of the chase scene that we had an episode. Um, what was it? Two or three when, when, you know, it was when they're chasing down the, the, the killer uh, episode two, I think. Um, yeah, it was episode two. Um, it was so nostalgic for the prequels. And I don't know how much this was on purpose, how much this was wishful thinking, or how much this was practicality, but it seemed like the high but slightly lower than movie budget that the TV show has, paired with 15 extra years of CGI advancement to where the cheap CGI they do for a TV show is exactly as good as the movie Star Wars top-of-the-line CGI was when they made the prequels. It looked so perfect that it would have just fit into episode two. The entirety of it, every aspect of it, how shiny things were, how naturally they moved. Those are the kinds of levels of CGI where it's hard to describe and it's hard to even really notice. But when you compare different CGIs, you know, it's like how different silences sound different on audio recordings. Different CGIs look just a little different. This was so perfect. It looked it looked like something top of the line from 15 years ago. And I, I liked that very much. Yeah, it did. That's a good point. Visually, it did really look like the prequels. Yeah. And it, it almost looked different than the whole episode, which it should have. Right. It was a flashback to Coruscant during yeah, uh, something that happened 20 planets. years earlier. Yeah. 
this was about 20 years earlier. So Grogu was about 30 in the scene. Uh, I, 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 so let me just go ahead and, and state the, when I said the, the fake flat, the, the fake nostalgic moment of the episode, which was seeing the rock from last episode, why that was my joke, why Jamie hated it so much. I just want to just state the obvious. We've never seen this rock before. And now it just happens to be in the background. The very next scene we get on Coruscant when they're yep. chasing Coruscant, massive, massive planet. It's, it, it, it's a little, it's strange credulity, credulity, I think, to think that they would have just happened to skitter right by the rock that we just saw last episode during this chase scene, but we didn't see it at all during the prequels. I just say it. It's a little oh, no, silly. I, little I, silly. I do feel a little similar. I saw it and I, I got a tiny little dopamine hit up. Oh yeah, I recognize that. That's Mount Everest. Bye, Mount Everest. Which is what I'm going to call because I'm not going to remember its real name. And yes, I'm going to think about Waterworld every time they show it or talk about it. I call it um, Rock, of course. Son. For, for anyone who doesn't know, at the end of Waterworld, they find like the only land that's above water, and it's a small island with a plaque on top that says, "Yeah, oh, we got to the top of Mount Everest on this day of 1922." And um, the idea that everything else underwater, everything else here is under technology, except for the top of Mount Everest, Space Everest. Let um, me let me help you. Let me help you out. Next time you're wondering if people saw Waterworld, <laughs> please explain it for us. <laughs> Nobody's seen Waterworld. What are you talking about? It's a classic. No, wait, are you not. serious? No wait, uh, way. Wait, are, are you joking? Boo. Like, you explained it? No, I'm saying you absolutely should have explained because you were, you said you said it like, well, if you haven't you haven't seen it, like I'll 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 take a moment to explain it, but like you should have seen it, kind of like nobody's seen Water. Okay, twenty five year old bad movie. A- any audience member, do me personally, Jamie, a favor. Reply in the comments. Leave a review. But say yes. whether or not you've seen Waterworld. That's what we want I'm to know. Going, no, we're going to check. <laughs> and the number of responses are going to tell us whether me or Lee are the better person uh, by, by this response. This does absolutely decide who is the better person. Yes. <laughs> this is absolutely fair. Go to at Talks on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Talks or go to MangoTalks.com. Any three of those mechanisms, you can give us the feedback. Have you seen Waterworld? Yes or no? We're going to tally the votes and we're going to, we're going to reveal it next episode. Okay. It's your job to tally the votes because I'm a forgetful motherfucker. So it's your job. You I'm, tally on them, and you I'm on it. And you have to be honest. I will be honest. I will be possibly checking you. You won't know if I do or not. If you, if you happen to not have seen Waterworld, the master, the masterpiece movie. Waterworld. Shut up. <laughs> okay, okay, new podcast idea. Waterworld. Waterworld. So podcast series. Yeah, we do need we do need a podcast series on the movie Waterworld. That's a good idea. What 1992's Kevin Costner? It would help me because I have not seen it. I have no. Of course, I haven't seen it. No. Uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> Wait, have you actually not? I have not seen Waterworld. No. Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk about that more offline then. It's um. It's exactly like Jar Jar. It was Binks. a flop at the time, wasn't it? Uh yes, it was a very expensive flop at the time. It's exactly like Jar Jar Binks. It was exactly what it tried to be, and it was the best version of what it tried to be, and it wasn't completely valueless, and it was fun, and people hated it because it had a lot of flaws, but it was fun, and it succeeded at being what it tried to be, and it's a weird cult classic, so bad it's good kind of thing. That sounds like Jar Jar. Okay. All right. Anything else we want to talk about this episode? Uh, no, I think that's good. I, I big fan of the episode. Are we, you know, two thumbs up. Thing was better than average episode. Um, 
the the filler was important and the backstory was important and they were both fun. And if you have an episode that's fun and important, start to finish, uh, succeeds at the monster of the week and succeeds at the backstory overarching plot. I don't know what more you could possibly want. Everything he said, everything he just said, put us put a squared at the top of it. I agree with everything he said. That's my thought of the episode too. I think it's above average episode. I think it's fun. I think it's what the show is. This is what Mandalorian is. If you don't like this, if you don't like this episode, like you're probably not going to like the series because this is what they're going for. This is the tone they're going for. So wait, wait. Okay, I don't know if we need to do worst thing about the episode. Like our whole like, what's the best and worst thing about Rock the of Coruscant? No. The worst thing about this episode that made us, the entire room, go, like, audibly, the first postcard. We love, in my house, the postcards during the credits. Oh, giant baby Yoda with the sand crabs? The sand crabs are so much creepier and terrible in that little picture. They have, like, eyeballs in wrong places. I don't have the And Baby Yoda looked like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day float at the top of it. Like, he looked he all wrong super color. weird. Yeah. He was the wrong color. He was creepy saturated. Oh, that one frame. I needed, like, three more frames just to get my heart level back to normal. I didn't that like that one either. It's interesting that I, I also saw that and also did not like it. So I co-signed that as well. It was not good. All right. That's <laughs> it. I think we've done it. I think we've nailed it. Yep, exactly. Episode over. all the way. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back with you next week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you like hearing us gab, you can check out all the many different podcasts we have on the Mega Talks Podcast Network. Right now, Spencer and I are reviewing Ted Lasso week by week over at a podcast feed called The Lasso Lowdown. We are about to start this week. It is gearing up. We're getting the, the band back together to review Succession, season four, the final episode of Succession over on the podcast feed, Line of Succession. And Spencer is off on his own, doing chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter over on Mangum Reads, and Mangum Reads is also a uh, podcast feed that does like a digital book club. So they just do Book of the Week, and they review it, and it's a lot of fun. Spencer does that podcast. And those are the podcasts that we have live right now. Join us next week. We will be back before Season 3, Episode 5 of Mandalorian. Me, Jamie, and I promise Spencer next week. Hope everybody has a great week. We'll see you later.